So we are continuing on in, uh, in James this morning. In fact, we've come to the end of the book of James, where we've spent some number of weeks this word, and not just hearers only, being a people that have the word of God deep within us, so it can't help but coming out in everything we do. And James talks about this in a whole number of different ways, and this way that he ends his book is unique, it's interesting, it's rich, and it's right there for us to explore this day. Let us begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, the world is not designed for everyone. I got a phone call on my cell phone this last week that looked just a little bit different. The name of the caller came up on the screen just like usual, but when I went to accept the call, I noticed there was an unusual icon there where the green phone silhouette usually is, the one that I tap or drag to answer a phone call. Now, I did answer this call, and while we started talking like at any other phone call, I saw that the screen of my phone now offered a little box for text with the note that the other caller would see whatever it was that I typed into that box. The person who had called me had just gotten a new phone, and they must have selected this feature by accident. And we talked about it for a minute, and I wondered aloud what purpose typing out texts to each other could possibly serve while we were literally on the phone with each other. And I said, isn't that the millennial dream to have the immediate back-and-forth response of a conversation without ever actually having to talk to someone? And I chuckled at my little joke. It's always a, a good joke when you make a, you know, you bring in the generational divide. At the end of the phone call, though, I was so puzzled by this whole concept that when the call ended, I searched online for more information. And I learned that the feature is called real-time text and that, much to my embarrassment, it is designed for deaf and hard-of-hearing users to make phone calls, including emergency calls to 911. It's an incredibly valuable service being integrated more and more into smartphones, replacing older standalone technology, and uh, not exactly something to joke about being just for lazy or entitled young people. It reminded me that I saw a disability advocate point out once that the vast majority of products and services mocked as being for the quote-unquote lazy or as exemplifying what is quote-unquote wrong with people today fails to consider the point of view of disabled folks. The as-seen-on-TV device that helps put socks on, well, that's a lifesaver for someone who has a limited ability to bend or twist or stretch. The delivery service that can bring fast food right to your porch, well, that can be invaluable for someone whose vision or chronic pain or fatigue keeps them from driving. What seems absurdly convenient or even silly to one of us, might be an absolute necessity for another because the world is not designed for everyone. Instead, we design the world for the average person, and that can create complications. The Air Force in the 1940s had a serious problem. Pilots could not keep control of their planes. 
even as the planes grew technologically more sophisticated, there was an unescapable decline in performance and an increasing number of deaths, even during the peacetime, that followed the end of World War II. At its worst point, there were 17 pilots who crashed in a single day during training and routine non-combat flights. And after first blaming the pilots and their training program, suspicion eventually turned to the cockpit of military planes. When first designed in 1926, the Army measured the physical dimensions of all of their male pilots, and they sized the cockpit to meet the average height, weight, arm length, and so on of all of their pilots. Now, their suspicion in the late 40s was that pilots had gotten taller over those 30-some years. So in 1950, the Air Force authorized a study that took 10 measurements on every one of over 4,000 pilots. The idea was that once they got an average, a new and updated average, they could update the cockpits. But there was one young researcher who doubted that developing a new set of average measurements would be all that helpful. When all the data was collected and the average was calculated, this researcher started looking for the elusive average pilot, someone who was within 30% of the average of each of the 10 measurements, and he made a surprising discovery. Not a single one of the more than 4,000 pilots was average across the board. And so, by designing something for an average pilot, it was literally designed to fit nobody. The Air Force responded quickly with equipment that could adapt to individuals, including movable foot pedals and adjustable helmet straps. Pilot performance soared. And today we have adjustable equipment most places. Computer monitors that can go up and down or tilt from side to side. Car seats that move forward and back and up and down in every other which way that you can imagine. But even so, we still tend to design for the average And even in churches, we can frequently make choices about how far we stray from the norm to accommodate someone. We assume that we can capture a majority of people while conserving our time and our resources if we just keep sight of an imaginary average compilation of needs and perspectives. But designing for the average creates something that fits no one. If any of you are suffering... They should pray, James says, and if any of you are happy, they should sing. It might seem like inane advice at first, too simplistic and obvious to be of any real use, but it is a needed reminder. There is room for both ends of the spectrum between suffering and joy in the community of faith, and there are appropriate responses for both. Because at times, it can feel for the suffering like they need to hide their inner turmoil to fit in a church that's designed for praise. Other times, the happy can feel guilty about their well-being inside of the suffering, and so they repress their joy in a church designed to help the afflicted. Neither of these is the wisdom of James. The Christian community gives welcome to the suffering and the joy-filled and gives space for honest prayer alongside jubilant song. There is no expectation that we will conform ourselves to the average, whatever that is, because the average doesn't exist. And so instead, it is about encompassing the full breadth of people. This passage sometimes presents as being about prayer, and it is to some degree. It's about praying when we're suffering 
or sick. But James is talking about more than just prayer. If we look at the scripture as though it's only about prayer, in fact, we can get very tied up in the puzzle about the power of prayer. The prayers of the faithful heal the sick, James says. The prayer of the righteous is powerful. There once was a completely ordinary human being named Elijah who just prayed and held off the rain for three and a half years. James clearly has a point about prayer, but if we take it to mean that all prayers offered faithfully and honestly will be answered just as we want them to, well, then we'll have more than just a few counterexamples to offer. We know prayer doesn't work just like that. But James isn't talking about prayer, not completely. From the beginning of this book, he's been writing about community. Brothers and sisters, he says over and over again in this text. He writes about things that divide a community and encourages things that bring them back together. He instructs peace and harmony, gentleness and wisdom. This little book is sometimes summed up in that phrase he coins early on about being doers of the word and not hearers only. And we might remember how he says that true religion is caring for the widows and the orphans. Yet he ends here the conclusion of his whole book by talking about community. Because he never intended for us to go far away just to do the acts of faith we think will save us. His whole point has been resurrecting the spirit within us that will express itself in the ways that we live, in all of the ways that we live, which necessarily begins in the place where we live. It begins and it ends with community. And so he talks about sickness and about sinfulness. The two are not the same thing, and James knows it, but they are related in one particular sense. They have the same effect in a community and on a person's relationships. Sickness and sinfulness both separate and isolate, and James will have no such thing. And so he instructs the community, if you are sick, call on the elders to come and anoint you, to pray over you. It's an intentional command there, giving the power to the one who is separated from the community by sickness. They get the power to shape and form community, the power to say, come to me because I am in need. And while it's hidden a little bit here, James does have a particular bent about the equality across social classes, that the rich and the poor should not be separated but should find community together and that the resources should be distributed equally. And so it is perhaps not a minor or subtle point that the elders are to bring oil to anoint. Oil was sometimes seen as a healing thing, and it's not a free substance. Those who are sick who cannot work, who might struggle supporting themselves, may not have had the oil for themselves. And so they called upon the elders of the church and the resources of the church to come and care for them. And James does something similar with the sinful. He instructs them to confess. But in the same breath, he talks about mutual confession, about confessing our sins to one another, For the deal with sin is that it so often separates us in a way that makes us feel like we are the only sinful person. We are the only one who has done anything wrong and puts the entire burden on us making all of the corrections. And James says, confess your sins to one another. For is there any community where there are any 
without sin. And so we are to live into the practice of mutual confession and mutual forgiveness so it creates an open space for us to confess our sins, whatever they may be. And so the thing which isolates us, which makes us feel so alone, can be handled and dealt with honestly, peaceably, for the good and the unity of the community. James talks about healing. This is so often the sticky part. We pray and we expect to be healed. But I wonder what good it might be to be healed all on our own. To go out and to say a prayer. Make someone fully themselves again. And then leave them without a community around them. Is there not a richer healing a deeper healing, which is about drawing a person back into the fabric of relationship and community that supports us all? Are any of us truly ever fully bodily healed? I'm young. I think so sometimes, but I suspect that may not be the case. Physical health is not something that is maintained from the beginning to the end of a life. It's not something that enough prayer can keep us going forever. But prayer and the practices of a prayerful community can keep us bound to one another from beginning to end. And so perhaps it is useful to know that in the Greek, James talks about healing with the word which is sozo, which really also means saved. And so through the prayers of the sick, they are saved and we are saved. And that there is an idiom for being made well, which is about being lifted up. And perhaps that is an act of salvation and being raised up to the heavens, but perhaps it is also lifted out of the places we are to the community that holds us all together. James talks about community here and pushes us to see out to the edges not to design for the average to expect us all to meet in the middle and conform to one another and our expectations of what we should be, but to see each other as we truly are and to build the bonds of relationship there just the same, to ask who is alienated and who is isolated and how do we bring them back in? What are the prayers we can pray that draw us back into each other in community? What are the sins we can confess? What are the things that we can deal with that divide us so that we might rely on each other as a place to express the faith that we know and we live? How can we be doers of faith in this place, in this community? So little in this world is designed for everyone. But the church has never been intended to be a place of the world, but a place all of its own. A place where everyone is welcome, where there is a space created for all, where we design to ensure that we are not separated or isolated or alienated. And so it has been the practice in this church. It's why we have an elevator back in the narthex because we knew it's important for folks to be able to make it from the parking lot up to this level and then back down again. 
It's why we have the words projected on a screen because sometimes it's too much trouble to read the words out of the hymnal. And I don't mean that it's just too hard or that we're a lazy people or that's just the way of the world, but I mean sometimes it's hard to see and not everyone has the same ability to see. And so we provide the options and the alternatives. We let the sick and the needs of the sick drive us in how we pray for healing and for hope and how we gather together to ensure the safety and the well-being of all people. Because it's not just about the core and the center and the average, but it's about ensuring that this is a place for everybody. We are not a community of averages, but of outliers. A glorious, holy community of outliers drawn in by the love of God, which we share and we live. James ends his entire book with an ambiguous phrase. He talks about drawing back someone to the truth. And he says, I have to pull it up to make sure I get it right. He says, you recognize that whoever brings a sinner back from the wrong path will save them from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It's ambiguous in the original language because it's not clear who the them is. Bringing back the sinner saves who exactly? It brings about the forgiveness of whose sins? It could be the one who has gone and is now returning. It could be the one who has left to draw them back. It could be all of us. Our faith, the faith that we embody and that we live is one that is expressed in community. And by leaning into and living into community, we might find a saving and a healing for us all. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together our next hymn,